0: Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On June the 6th, 1944, the 2nd Ranger Battalion, consisting of 225 young American troops, landed on the beach at Normandy, France. Their orders were to scale a treacherous 100-foot-high cliff known as Pointe-du-Hoc. The moment these brave soldiers stepped onto the beach, they came under heavy fire. On top of the cliff, German troops had dug in with heavy artillery, and they were unleashing a massive assault on the Americans. Of the 225 men who tried to scale the cliff... Only 99 survived. But when the bullets had stopped flying and the smoke had cleared, the daring mission had been accomplished. Allied troops were now on European soil. It was only a matter of time. The continent would soon be liberated. Today, 67 years later, a bayonet-shaped monument adorns the steep cliff where ranger blood was shed. It memorializes the courageous D-Day sacrifice of our troops. And it's now a destination for many ranger families. Several years ago, Kathy Wentz brought her nine children to Pointe du Hoc. Her father, Richard Wentz, was a lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion. Following the war, Wentz had never talked much about the battle. But just before he died in 1981, his family got him to open up. And recount his story. Kathy was stunned at how naive she'd been. She had no idea of the horrors that her dad had suffered. And his heroic show of courage. To help her kids appreciate the sacrifices made by the boys of Pointe du Hoc. Including their granddad. In 1994 Kathy and her family flew to France. They stood on the point at Normandy. And together they prayed the Lord's Prayer. You know, I'm sure that on D-Day in 1944, the Lord's Prayer was prayed loud and often on the beaches of Normandy. There probably wasn't an American GI who didn't at least breathe Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer under his breath. In the heat of battle, you fall back on what you know. All those little boys who had quoted the Lord's Prayer in Sunday school were now praying it with all the desperation of a soldier fighting for his life. One day, I too would like to go to Point du Hoc and pray the Lord's Prayer. I would think against that backdrop, in light of the history, a recitation of the Lord's Prayer would be quite a moving experience, especially as you come to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if ever there was a day in recent history when God's will was done on earth, it was D-Day. The evil Adolf Hitler was on a rampage. Countries in Europe were falling like dominoes. The stench of burning Jewish flesh was wafting up to heaven from the concentration camp smokestacks. If the allies had lost on the beaches of Normandy that day... We'd probably be all speaking German and eating sauerkraut at tonight's picnic. The American flag would have a swastika instead of stars and stripes. On D-Day at Normandy, God answered the prayers of Americans and took up the cause of freedom. His will was done on earth as it is in heaven. If ever Almighty God wore red, white, and blue... It was on June the 6th, 1944. But not always has America lined up on God's side. Today, America is hated in Muslim countries, not just because of our politics. Our invasion in Iraq and our support of Israel is just part of the story. One of the most prominent reasons Islamic fundamentalists hate America is due to the filth and corruption and immorality that we traffic all over the world. Religious Muslims, they hear that America is a Christian country, yet they see the sleazy movies and the raunchy music videos Hollywood distributes. They take note of our sexual perversions, our immodesty, our materialism. Western culture is viewed as a threat to the morality of their youth. They watch America... Legally murder unborn babies in the name of convenience. They see the flood of pornography we export. Is it any wonder that we're the evil empire in their eyes? Sadly, America gets hated for its decadence. And in light of this corruption for an American to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven he or she is not just asking God to protect and prosper us, but we are also asking God to pour out revival and bring our people to repentance and turn our nation from its wicked ways. You see, God bless America is a sweet notion, but it's often sung superficially. I'm sure at times God is ashamed of the colors red, white, and blue. There's one certainty, Father God and Uncle Sam are not the same person. And if old Uncle Sam takes an ungodly position or steers from biblical truths, we need to always side with our father, not our uncle. Once a little boy, he prayed, he asked to say the blessing at dinner. He closed his eyes and bowed his head, and this is what he prayed. I pledge allegiance You know, I wish the United States of America was so dedicated to God that there was little difference between our prayer and our pledge. But that's not the case. There are occasions when our pledge of allegiance to God puts us in conflict with the policies of our nation. I hope you realize that God's kingdom is distinct and far greater than the United States of America or any other nation for that matter. The United States of America is not the world's superpower. The real superpower is the kingdom of God. Certainly, our nation has a rich, spiritual, and faith-filled history. The freedoms defined in the United States Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution would have never been conceived if not for the Protestant Reformation that preceded them. Martin Luther's idea of the priesthood of every believer laid the foundation for the principle of one man, one vote. In God's eyes, there was no difference between the plowboy and the king. Both come to God on the same basis, the work of Jesus on the cross. Thus, it was the fire of the Reformation that gave birth to this whole idea of democracy. Scotsman Samuel Rutherford wrote a book in 1644 that he entitled Rex Lex, which means law is king. His book was revolutionary, for it flew in the face of the political philosophy in Europe at the time. No longer did a courageous Rutherford accept Lex Rex, the popular notion, or the king is law. He believed that men should be governed by laws, not by other men. Rutherford's ideas were based on the Bible especially on Moses and the law from Mount Sinai. Ancient Israel was governed by God's law, not the will of man. To be governed by the will of man was tyranny in the eyes of Rutherford. Since the law was given by God, the king also needed to be subject to the law. When the founding fathers of America gathered for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, it was Samuel Adams who made the statement, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting sun may his kingdom come. Adams and the other signers believed that they had restored God and not the king as the final authority for government. Where do you think the early Americans got the famous phrase written into the Declaration of Independence Certain inalienable rights. You see, that refers to rights that are not conferred upon men by other men or by the state. But unchallengeable, absolute rights. Inalienable rights are unchallengeable because they come from our Creator Himself. You should realize that the very notion of freedom altogether has Christian roots. The Bible teaches that God, not man, is the ultimate authority. And since man was made in God's image, everyone should be free to serve God and be governed by God with limited intervention from the state. In fact, the American legal system was initially founded on the theories of the British jurist William Blackstone. He believed that there were only two bases for law, nature and revelation. The right approach, he said, was God's revelation, and to Blackstone, That was revealed, the revealed Word of God was found in one place, the Bible. From bankruptcy laws to private property rights to judgments for damages, American common law was founded on scriptural principles. The American flag that flew over Fort Henry in 1814 was 42 feet by 30 feet, an enormous size. This was the flag that Francis Cot Key saw 10 miles out to sea in the midst of battle. This was the flag that inspired his famous song, The Star-Spangled Banner. For years, though, no one knew how a flag that size could fly from a pole 185 feet tall. You'd think in the stormy weather the flag would snap the pole. But a recent discovery has solved the riddle the National Park Service found a cross-shaped support nine feet underground near the fort's entrance. As it turns out, it was this cross-shaped beam that supported the huge flag. And this is a microcosm of Christianity's role in America. Freedom flies over our nation because of our Christian underpinnings. You see, the Bible alone provides the rationale and precepts that protect individual rights, yet at the same time bringing order to a diverse and changing society. My point is, without Christianity, America as we know it would not exist. It is certainly true that the United States of America has a rich, spiritual, and faith-filled history. This is why I am proud to be an American. And this is why we should teach future generations of Americans the wisdom of the philosophies on which our country was built. The future of the house depends on the strength of its foundation. But what I don't want us to do is to confuse a flawed and feeble human system of government with God's kingdom. For earthly kingdoms come and go, including the United States. It's only the kingdom of God that is eternal. From time to time, America's interests in God's concerns do run parallel. God may use the United States of America to accomplish His purposes, but that doesn't make us immune to His judgment. Whenever we are weighed in the balance and found lacking, trust me, God will set us aside and raise up another vehicle for His use. British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge was speaking in Washington, D.C. Throughout his talk, he had been very negative in his outlook on world affairs. After his speech, a reporter asked him, You've been very pessimistic. Don't you have any reason for optimism? Muggeridge was surprised. He said, Friend, I couldn't be more optimistic than I am because my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. He paused to let the thought sink in, and then he finished. Just think if the first church had pinned its hopes on the Roman Empire. You see, ancient Rome is proof that even superpowers, even superpowers that start out on democratic principles outlive their usefulness and eventually fall victim to sin and corruption. Yes, I am privileged to be an American. Yes, I gladly pledge my allegiance to my country. Yes, I appreciate the sacrifices of the men and women who fight to keep us free. Yes, I would take up arms for my country if needed. But do I believe that God travels on an American passport? Nope. Do I believe Jesus is going to come back to earth on board Air Force One? Nope. Do I believe that God is somehow indebted to America? Not hardly. Do I believe He'll bless us today just because He's done so in the past? No. I ran across a quote by a man named J.B. Priestley. He writes this, We should behave toward our country as women behave toward the men they love. A loving wife will do anything for her husband except stop criticizing and trying to improve him. We should cast the same affectionate but sharp glance at our country. In other words, we need to nag our nation to righteousness. On the eve of the battle of Jericho, Joshua encountered a soldier with a drawn sword. Joshua confronted this fellow following military, military protocol. He barked at him. He said, are you for us or are you our adversary?" The man said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, Joshua had asked, friend or foe? And in essence, the man said, neither. He was neither on Israel's side, nor was he on Jericho's side. He was on God's side. And you see, this is the question all nations and all peoples need to ask. Not is God on our side, but are we on? On God's side, God's kingdom stands above all. You see, the Old Testament taught us that the kingdom of God would be an earthly political kingdom. The last book of the New Testament, Revelation, also takes up this same theme. God reveals to John a day when Jesus will return to earth. Our Lord comes riding on a white horse, a war horse, mind you. He's leading an army of the redeemed into battle. He destroys the Antichrist and all the earth's armies. In one day, Jesus restores order. He rights all wrongs and throws down wicked leaders and wipes out evil and establishes his throne over a fallen planet and enforces a true peace and brings about the restoration men have dreamed of and God has promised. Revelation 11 predicts the day. When the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. You see, in one sense to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray for that day, yet future. At the end of Revelation, John is able to sing, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has been given a glimpse of the apocalyptic events leading up to the second coming of Christ. And in response, John prays, even so come Lord Jesus. It's interesting to me, at the end of his long life, and in light of such remarkable revelations that he'd received, John, one of Jesus' original twelve disciples, he reverts back to the first prayer that he was ever taught, the Lord's Prayer. He says, come, Lord Jesus. In essence, he says, your kingdom come. When I see corrupt politicians abuse our trust, and wicked people prosper, and bad guys get away with their crimes, and suicide bombers kill innocent people, and the church gets persecuted, and children starve to death in Africa, and women are sold as sex slaves, and nations go to war. I long for the day when God's kingdom will rule over this earth. One day Jesus will come in power and in great glory. He'll bring justice and healing. He'll establish his authority over the kingdoms of this earth. Thus we should all pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one way to pray for the kingdom of God. But there is another way to pray this line in the Lord's Prayer. For in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the full meaning of God's kingdom isn't explained by the Old Testament prophecies or by the book of Revelation. For there is more to the kingdom. You see, before God's kingdom comes with military might, and political muscle, and global glory, it comes spiritually into human hearts. It flies under the radar. It moves under the surface like a seed. It grows, but it can't be seen. You see, before the kingdom appears on earth in a tangible, visible form, it first conquers gradually, and subtly, and invisibly, and spiritually. It is hidden in the hearts of God's people. When Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, Mark chapter 1 tells us his message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of course, Jesus pointed to no palaces. He carried no flag. He sat on no throne. He never marched in front of an army. But Jesus had begun to build a spiritual kingdom. In one sense, Jesus was the kingdom of God in person. When Jesus returns a second time, he'll be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. But today, Jesus is the king of hearts. He rules over people. This is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, the kingdom of God does not come with observation or with outward visible trappings. Nor will they say, oh, see here or see there. For indeed, The kingdom of God is within you. It's spiritual. You see, before Jesus rules over institutions, He rules over individuals. Before He occupies halls of power, He occupies the hearts of people. Today, God's kingdom comes when people are willing to come under the sway of King Jesus and bow to His will and allow for His grace to transform their world. Author Philip Rankin, he writes to explain God's kingdom. He says, it's a kingdom of the heart. It's not a territory. It's not a party politic. It's not a nation state with geographic borders. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. For us to pray, your kingdom come, is not only to look forward to a day yet future, but it's also to ask Jesus to reign right now over our marriage and our family and our work, and our emotions, and our play, and our thoughts, and our money. It's to pray, Lord, permeate all of my life with your love and with your truth. Author Max Licato, he puts it, When you say thy kingdom come, you are inviting the Messiah himself to walk into your world. Take your throne in our land. Be present in my heart. Be present in my office. Come into my marriage. Be Lord of my family fears and doubts. This is no feeble request. It's a bold appeal for God to occupy every corner of your life. When when I think of what God is doing in the world today, I recall a dad who woke up early one Saturday morning. His family was all still in bed. He wanted just a few minutes to himself, just to read the newspaper, to enjoy a cup of coffee in peace. It was 6 a.m., But his five-year-old daughter decided to join him. The father pleaded. He said, honey, please go back to bed. It's not time to get up just yet. But the little girl, she just couldn't. She was ready to greet the weekend with her dad. Finally, the dad opted for a distraction. He ripped out a full-page picture of the earth from the newspaper. Then he tore it into pieces. The man handed his daughter the scraps and a roll of scotch tape. He said, honey, I want you to go into the den, and I want you to see if you can put the world back together. It took just a few minutes before she returned with the task completed. The daughter showed her daddy the taped up picture, and he was stunned. He asked how she was able to put the world back together so quickly. And that's when the little girl, she turned the page over. And on the back of the picture was a man. You see, she didn't know a lot of geography, but she knew the shape of a man. And she said, Daddy, when you make the man right, you make the world right. And this is what God is doing today. He's making the world right, one man, one woman at a time. I like what J.I. Packer writes of our text. He says, to pray thy kingdom come is searching and demanding For one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. Are you and I willing to live under the sway of Jesus? Are we willing to allow Him to put our lives, our broken lives back together one piece at a time to make us into what He desires us to be? You see, as Christians, the Bible tells us that we are citizens of heaven living on earth. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. We're divine diplomats. We're spokespeople for the kingdom of God, living among the kingdoms of men. When people walk into our assembly here at Calvary Chapel, they should get a taste of heaven by how we live, by what we believe, by how we treat one another. Jesus wants you and I to be a little bit of heaven on earth. When George Shultz served as the Secretary of State, he kept a large globe in his office. And when meeting with U.S. ambassadors, he would always quiz them. He would tell them to walk over to the globe and point to their country. Invariably, they would pick the nation to which they'd been sent. And Shultz would give them a quick lesson in diplomacy. He would correct them and he would point to the United States. Schultz wanted the ambassador to never forget that the land where he lives is not his home. His home is the land that he represents. And the same is true for us. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're citizens of God's kingdom dispatched to this world. There's an old Christian comedy group called Isaac Air Freight. And they used to do this skit that they called King Me. King Me was a man who lived his life all about himself. He built up his own kingdom with no regard to the welfare of anyone else. Poor King Me ended up lonely and miserable. He alienated the people that he loved. He got all that he wanted, but he was never satisfied. Spiritually, he died a pauper. And Jesus doesn't want any of us to be a King Me. Real joy results not from building your kingdom, but by bowing to his, by praying, God, your will be done. Notice verse 10 in our text is the bridge in the Lord's Prayer. Before it, we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, prayer begins with God. We embrace him as a father who knows best, we approach God respectfully. Hallowed be your name. But after verse 10, we petition God. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All of a sudden, we're asking for provision and for pardon and for protection. Notice the prayer starts with praise. And then it flows into petition. But sandwiched in between is this bridge. Sandwiched between God's greatness and our neediness is the true essence of prayer. We want God's kingdom to come. We want His will to be done. You see, most people mistake prayer as a means of getting what they want done. They try to use God to further their ambition or to make their life easier. God ends up their servant rather than vice versa. Trust me, God will never allow himself to be used to build up another man's kingdom. God is not in the business of supporting king me. We pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know how that works. (laughs) In heaven, God says, jump, and the angels say, how high? You see, before we ask God for a nickel, He expects us to bow to His authority. Always remember the bridge between praise and petition is surrender and humility and a commitment to live for His kingdom in pursuit of His will. In John 14 verse 13, Jesus promises, Whatever you ask in my name that I will do. And people want to stop right there. They expect God to cater to their every whim. But the verse continues, That the Father may be glorified in the Son. The promise of Jesus assumes that we've bowed to Him. That we're all about His name and His nature and His glory. That His desires are our desires. Again, in heaven, obedience is immediate and thorough. And when that becomes our attitude, then we can pray for whatever we want. And God will do it for us. John Wesley once wrote a prayer I hope to mimic He said, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Here is a life fully devoted to God. And this is why verse 10 is at the heart of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For this is true prayer. It's the cry of a heart sold out to God. In America, tomorrow is Independence Day. but We sometimes fail to remember that the greatest type of freedom is freedom from sin and selfishness, and pride. You see, it's better to live under a tyrannical dictator in this life than it is to live forever in a cell of sin and in the hell that follows. Sin enslaves us. It turns our lives into a cage. Pleasures that once tickled us now entrap us and torment us. Pride and the sin that goes with it rips us off and drags us down and degrades us hey, build your own kingdom and you'll become the proud ruler over sandcastles. You'll wake up one day having spent your one and only life on what looks so impressive yet gets washed away in the first high tide. A missionary once said, our greatest fear should not be of failure but of succeeding at something that really doesn't matter. In the end, the only pursuit that will matter is building up God's kingdom, and doing His will. This July 4th, I want to remind us that though we're American citizens, first and foremost, we're citizens of heaven. And this presents for us a challenge. True patriotism pledges allegiance to a country but not to the exclusion of God. It's a loyalty on earth, but it refuses to ascribe absolute loyalty to anything earthly. It recalls that the kingdoms of man are all passing away. Our unrestricted love and devotion belongs only to God. Hey, we stand for what's pure and right and true, not just for what's red and white and blue. I want to close with a patriotic song. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Its lyrics come from a poem written by Sir Cecil Spring Rice. It was written in 1908. At the time, he was serving as the British ambassador to Sweden. Later, he would become the ambassador to the United States who would persuade Woodrow Wilson to join the Allies in World War I. The song's original title was Two Fatherlands. The ambassador's lyrics speak of a loyalty to two countries. The first stanza talks of our earthly country. The last stanza is about heaven. I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love, the love that asks no question, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best, the love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. On this 4th of July, let's pledge ourselves anew to live as patriots of both our countries, as great Americans, and as committed Christians. Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for this weekend. We thank You for our nation's birthday, the birth of our freedoms, for the privileges that we enjoy. And it is proper and right for us to once again pledge our allegiance to our country and to support and fight for its freedoms. But it is even more appropriate that we pledge ourselves anew to the country of heaven, to the kingdom of God, to remind ourselves that earthly kingdoms come and go, but your kingdom prevails. Your kingdom is eternal. And that you are moving, even today, under the radar, under the surface of the the vast History of humanity, you're moving under the surface, working in lives, changing hearts, building up your own kingdom. And though eyes can't see it right now, you're doing a great work in the world. And we're a part of it. Lord, may we be faithful ambassadors of Jesus. May we be faithful to our heavenly kingdom. Father, thank you for your word today. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.